This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, the fight for refugees and our immigrant communities with a week of action to defund hate. Indivisible, along with several partner organizations, is pushing for members of Congress to draw down funding for ICE and Customs and Border Protection in next year's budget. All this week, groups from across the country are staging rallies, events, and office visits. And here on the West Coast, a defund hate banner is making its way from the Canadian border all the way down to the Mexico border, gathering signatures all along the way. And we will check in with two indivisible leaders currently on the road with the banner in California. Then the Trump administration is pushing forward with regulations that will get rid of the so-called Flores Settlement, a legal ruling establishing standards for the treatment of migrant children in detention in the United States. Immigration attorney Hope Fry works as a Flores monitor, and she joins us to talk about what these changes in the law may mean and about why the Trump administration is looking to end the monitoring of these children in detention. The government is so intensely angry about monitoring because it's been the way that its gross failures to comply with the law have been exposed. That's all coming up, so stay with us. So as I mentioned on last week's show, as part of Indivisible's Week of Action to Defund Hate, which is now officially underway, Indivisible's in Washington, Oregon, and California are delivering a banner from the Canadian border all the way down to the Mexico border, and they're stopping to meet with Indivisible groups along the way and gathering signatures on the banner. And I was fortunate to get to drive the banner to five stops here in Washington on Monday, and I just want to say a huge thanks to everybody who came out. We had members from Indivisible Kirkland, Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Indivisible Bainbridge, Indivisible Eastside, Seattle Indivisible, Ellensburg Indivisible, Indivisible Tacoma, Indivisible Puyallup, Olympia Indivisible, and Lower Columbia Indivisible. And uh, just please forgive me if I forgot your group. Just know how much I so appreciate you guys being there. It was awesome. A special thanks goes out to our very first signer of the day, Kirsten Hansen, and also a huge shout out to Ellensburg Indivisible leader Cheryl Bouchard for making the trip over the Cascades to be in Bellevue. Wow. And our our last signer of the day was somebody who really just went above and beyond. Todd Milden, also of Ellensburg Indivisible, missed us at some earlier stops. And so he went all the way south, followed us to Chehalis to sign the banner. I'm still just blown away by that. Uh, thanks also to my wife, Lori Caldwell, for making the drive to Edmonds to pick up the banner for my leg of the journey. And of course, thank you to my awesome co-pilot, my mom, Jan Cox, who documented everything, by the way. And you can see her photos at the Border to Border with Love to Defund Hate Facebook page. I have a link for that at indivisiblepodcast.org. And so at the time of this recording on Wednesday, the banner is in California, heading south, being driven by two indivisible members from up here in Washington, Snoco Indivisible leader Anita Dietrich and the person who conceived of this event, Kat Pipkin. And they are both with us now by car. Hello to you both. So uh, I will just ask you both to drive safely while we uh, conduct this interview and people will actually hear that you're on the road right now. But uh, so, Kat, you uh, conceived of this at Indivisible's National Campaign Network in D.C. And I just have to say it was very cool to be present at the creation of all of this. Just give us a sense of where the idea came from. We had just come out of an immigration session and then I went into a a rural caucus session in which rural groups talked about how they were having a hard time working in their districts and really felt like they needed to connect with other groups. And somehow, I don't know how, maybe it's just the magic of collective action where everybody was in one place all at one time. It literally just popped in my head. 
Well, you know, you speak of collective action, and I sometimes feel like these conferences exist in part to get people together to conceive of ideas like this. So, uh, Anita, and I know that you were the one who came up with the idea for the banner scroll itself. What do you hope that having a banner being passed between groups will convey symbolically? I think the bottom line is I have a fervent hope that each group will look at all those signatures and feel so good about being a collective testament to all these people who came together with one common goal to send a message that we will not tolerate hate. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, this really is a very personal issue for a lot of us. Uh, It's been pointed out recently that uh, the majority of us here in the United States are immigrants or are descended from immigrants. And so I move to ask both of you, what does defund hate and the issue of immigration mean to you personally? Kat? Well, I've lived outside of the country. I've lived in Europe. I've lived in Asia. I've lived in Puerto Rico, a U.S. territory. And so this feels really personal. I have, a, I have many friends who are immigrants, and we indeed are all immigrants. Uh, people like me of European heritage are immigrants. The fact that we are in effect torturing and damaging people in this country consciously, knowingly, and then compounding the issue by pulling funds from other necessary budget budgets, such as FEMA, yeah. disaster relief, for me is, it's horrific. I studied the Holocaust in Germany. I have an international studies degree, and that was one of our specialties. And I spent a lot of time looking at and analyzing what the escalation up to a totalitarian regime looks like. So the last two years have just really been scary for me like everybody else and immigration is just is is the worst possible manifestation of what has been happening anita what are your thoughts oh let's see they're probably threefold i think the first one is that i was a foster parent and i lost a foster child that i had had since birth to the system and the pain of losing that child makes me identify with the pain of these families being separated. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Another thing is that I spent a good bit of my life or um, down in California. And what I witnessed after growing up in Chicago was so different. The Latino population down there doing some of the crummiest jobs were some of the most lovely people I had ever met. Thirdly, As you know, I just converted to Judaism yesterday after a year of study, and it has always been kind of who I am to leave the campsite better than I found it. And having two grandchildren makes it even more a priority. So one of the things that drew me to Judaism was a concept of tikkum olan, which is actually defined as acts of kindness performed to perfect or repair the world. So that's kind of who I am. So having this opportunity, you know, I, I can't thank Kat enough for all of her hard work. Stefan, you as well, you know, being able to be a part of this, you know, I'm so grateful to both of you. 
Well, I'm grateful to both of you for making this drive, and congratulations on your conversion. I know that that's something that you have been working on for for quite some time. Thank you. Yeah, so I know you guys are on the move right now. Where are you headed to today? We are headed from Sacramento to Davis, California, to Congressman Garamendi's office. He's someone who we believe can be moved on this issue, and YOLO Indivisible and NorCal Jewish Action are meeting us there, along with our two national organizers are also meeting us there. Bobby Michaels and Danessa Atilas uh, are meeting us there as well to send us very strong, loud message. And that is what this is all about. And then tell us about the rest of the route and what's planned. Tonight, we're headed to Fresno, uh, where we'll be with Central Valley Indivisible uh, at their regional meeting, and they're hosting us, and they're going to have a whole bunch of people there to sign. Uh, Tomorrow, we are in Los Angeles at the downtown primary detention facility there. Right, and then I know that there's also an event planned for Orange County, and then this is all leading up to the big event on Friday in San Diego, right? Yes. So Friday night, actually, is we will end up going from Irvine down to San Diego for the final event, which is very exciting. All of the as many indivisible groups from California and other states as possible are converging on this location. California allied groups, uh, UNITE and United We Dream, of course, which has been a national partner, uh, will be there. Leah Greenberg is flying in, which is yeah. extra exciting because she was one of the people, as I as I mentioned to you previously, she's well, you were there. Heck, <laughs> um, we were all sitting around the table and she actually came up to the idea of to the border with love or border to border with love. Um, so it, it really has brought this thing full circle to have her be able to join us for this. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's absolutely appropriate that she's going to be there. We're very excited about that. I'll just ask both of you before I let you go in closing, what you hope this project accomplishes ultimately. Anita? Boy, I just hope everyone feels the love in this, the love in the project, the love with each other, and the love for the plight of those that are struggling so badly right now. And Kat, what are your thoughts? What do you ultimately hope that this project accomplishes? I have twofold goals. One is that we really are trying to move the needle on specific members of Congress on this vote. We need them to vote the right way on appropriations or on a continuing resolution. So that's our first and foremost. That's our goal. Secondly, we really are sending a collective message of amplifying and growing people power that that immigrants are not forgotten. They're not invisible. Um, we don't look away. We care desperately. And we will take collective action to make a change. Well, that's perfectly put. Uh, Kat Martin, Anita Dietrich, I want to thank you both so much. Uh, as a native Californian, I just want to point out that I know how many miles you are about to put uh, behind you right now with this. <laughs> <laughs> So I will say uh, thank you again for the work that you're doing and uh, drive safely. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you. So as Kat said, the idea here is to move our representatives on this issue when it comes time to vote for next year's budget. And, um, you know, I'll just point out that only two of our state's members of Congress, Pramila Jayapal and Adam Smith, voted against the supplemental spending bill in June that gave an additional $4.5 billion in 
virtually unregulated funds to the Trump administration to spend at the border. And look, the annual budget is where Democrats actually have some real leverage here, and we want them to use it. So we are looking for you to do one of two things. You can call your representative or make a selfie video asking your representative to draw down the budget for ICE and CBP in the fiscal year 2020 budget, and also to get rid of the $387 million slush fund for ICE that Trump can and will use to continue to terrorize our immigrant communities. I have a script for you for this, as well as a link to a website where you can record your video and just have it sent directly to your member of Congress. Super easy. That is at indivisiblepodcast.org. So check that out. And look, if I do not say this often enough, you guys, thank you so much for all you do. The Trump administration has recently announced that they have finalized regulations that would end the so-called Flores Settlement, which provides protections for the treatment of migrant children in federal detention. To help us understand what these new regulations may mean for these children and their families, we are joined by immigration and human rights attorney Hope Fry, who is also a Flores monitor, and she has testified before Congress about conditions at the border. Hope Fry, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So if you could just briefly remind us of what the Flores Settlement is and what it stipulates. Um, The Flores Settlement sets the national standards that govern the detention, treatment, and release of children held by any immigration authority. Um, It provides the only protections by law that the children have. Um, It requires safe and sanitary conditions, the kind of conditions that minimal conditions that one would expect to have where children are detained. Um, It requires that children be held in licensed facilities and that children be released least as expeditiously as possible. The idea is that children will pass through the system very quickly in the least restrictive uh, setting. And so under the administration's new regulations, uh, what will change for children and their families? Uh, The new regulations, first of all, the final rule is 538 pages long. Wow. Uh, And most of that is uh, justification by the administration for everything it's doing. When a rule is published, the public has an opportunity to comment on it. Um, And the government is supposed to address all the concerns of the commenters. Of course, they didn't. But they've used that vehicle as an opportunity to to push their agenda. The regulations in this preface say in several places the administration's goal, which is to deter people from coming to the United States. It's their view that because of Flores, people think that if they have a child, I think they they say, and this is a quote, it's a free ticket in. Mm. So um, people come because they think they can get a pass because they have children. Um, The the settlement, the, the new regulations, if they uh, are ever uh, implemented, have, I think, three fundamental changes. And the one that isn't talked about the most is perhaps the most serious. Under the Flores Settlement Agreement, the children have the right through their lawyer to inspect any facility that holds children and to speak with any child held there. That's the Flores monitoring function, and I lead visits like that. They're very small visits of a few few attorneys and sometimes accompanied by um, doctors. Uh, 
and it's very important that we talk with the children. It's from those individual conversations that we understand what is actually happening within the facility, since there is no transparency at all other than what the children say. The, the rule will end monitoring completely. And it's interesting, the regulations that would sunset it do not need to talk about monitors it would provide for them or not provide for them. But the government is so intensely angry about monitoring because it's been the way um, that its gross failures to comply with the law have been exposed, that it specifically says in several places in the preface that these rules eliminate monitoring. If you eliminate monitoring, you put everything that's done in secret. Right. Um, it's a very, very scary thing. And to me, um, because of the other provisions, it is, is the most frightening. Um, the other thing that combines with that to make it terrifying is the end of licensure for family detention centers. Um, Flores, one of the key provisions of Flores, and it takes up a lot of pages of the settlement, is the requirement that all facilities holding children be licensed. And th there are a few reasons for that, but chief among them is that licensing authorities not only set rules that have to be followed um, that are supposed to be best practices for the custody, keeping custody of children. Now, licensure would be ended for family detention facilities um, and replaced instead in states that don't have licensure by a self-policing situation by ICE. So they would be administering the standards program for themselves. Oh, wow. Um, and they were found by the Office of the Inspector General in this last year to have not properly supervised contractors that they hired to, um, to regulate themselves, to look at, to audit ICE's function of itself. They were found not to be giving proper standards and not to be supervising those people in a rather large uh, opinion by the Office of the Inspector General. Um, so how can we imagine that in an area where the stated reason for the rule is to deter people, that self-licensing will result in humane and proper treatment of people? Right. I think we have to think that the opposite will be true, and there will be no way to know because no one will have the right to go inside. Um, the final provision that is extremely dangerous in the new regulations is the indefinite detention of families. Now, I think when people hear the word family, they think, oh, mother, father, and kids, but that is not a family unit. Family is defined as one parent and the children. So they're going to be separating families anyway. But the idea is if you permanently detain people through the course of their entire immigration proceedings, number one, they won't come, and number two, they won't be able to take the incarceration, so they'll withdraw their request for relief and leave before it's finished. Um, there will be no licensing for these places. Children will be detained indefinitely. And your immigration case can take, if you, you know, right now, um, in many places, it's some years from the time that the government first tells you you're in deportation until you have your first hearing. In some places, I think San Antonio, it's four years. Wow. Then you have your hearing, there's a decision, you can appeal that decision to the Board of Immigration Appeals, and then you can appeal that adverse uh, decision to the federal courts of appeal. So if you pursue your case all the way through, 15 years maybe, so Maria goes
goes into custody at two and she's 17 when they finish the case uh, and maybe they win their asylum case and maybe they don't and she spent her entire life in custody. That is just extraordinary. So just to sum up, these new regulations would mean no oversight by monitors like you, no licensure of facilities with ICE actually overseeing itself, and then uh, parents or a parent with children can be held essentially indefinitely. Um, I I know that there's already been a preemptive lawsuit over this by a Flores legal team, and a number of states have also already filed suit, including here in Washington. I'll just ask you, do you think the Trump administration expects these regulations ending Flores to stand? (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, their travel ban largely stood. It's hard to understand what they expect. Um, But they did say that if it's their view uh, that if part of the regulation is invalidated, um, the rest of it will remain in force. Now, they don't have the right to independently make that happen. A court can invalidate or enjoin uh, all of the regulations. Um, But it's it's clear that they think they've got they've got some legs. And certainly the number of things that the Trump administration has done that clearly violate the law that it is still doing. Uh, in the area of immigration um, is is large. Yeah. Uh, and so ultimately, we're just going to have to hope for the courts to uh, make a favorable ruling here. So there are two other recent developments in immigration that I would like to get your take on. Uh, first, the Trump administration has recently sought what are called safe third country agreements with Mexico and Guatemala. What would this mean for asylum seekers to the United States? Well, they have issued a third country rule, which is what this is about. And the third country rule says that if you have transited through uh, another country uh, on your way here and you haven't asked for asylum there, that you are barred, completely precluded from uh, asking for asylum here. Um, And Guatemala has said that they will provide a safe haven, a method for people to um, seek asylum there. So anybody coming from Honduras, uh, El Salvador, Nicaragua must pass through Guatemala. So all of those people would be ineligible to receive asylum here, which is a huge number of people. Uh, Guatemala does not have a process to protect people uh, in an asylum uh, aspect, and that's that's well known. Mexico has refused so far to enter into a third country agreement, but if they do, that means nobody could get asylum unless they apply in Mexico. Mexico does not have an asylum process. Mexico is a very dangerous country, um, not just at the border, but in many places, and they have shown in, in the recent actions uh, over the migrant protection protocol that they have no ability to offer protection to people. Well, that was the other thing that I was actually going to ask about was the migrant protection protocol. So this has meant that asylum seekers have to wait in Mexico instead of the U.S. for their asylum hearings. What has been the fallout from that for asylum seekers and their children? Well, this is a hideous uh, provision, a a hideous policy. Um, They call it the Migrant Protection Protocol, but it's better known as Remain in Mexico. Um, About 38,000 asylum seekers as of this week um, have been issued the document that starts deportation proceedings. It's called a notice to appear uh, and sent back to Mexico 
to wait. And these are people with no ties to Mexico um, who are living along the border in absolute squalid conditions uh, uh, in extreme danger. Um, there's a, a letter that Human Rights first wrote on August 26th um, to the Department of Homeland Security, in which they detail many things that have happened. Uh, women and children have been abducted for sex slavery. They've been trafficked. People have been killed. They've been beaten. They've been robbed. They've been kidnapped. Um, this letter by Human Rights First, it's an August 26th letter um, uh, to the Officer for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties in the, the Department of Homeland Security, has many examples, well-documented examples of the kinds of harms that migrants are facing uh, when they're forced to remain in Mexico. Well, it's just horrifying. Uh, all of it really is. And, you know, uh, we've heard off the record from Trump officials that cruelty is the point with these policies. And you've talked about this a little bit already. And I know that you've testified before Congress about what you've seen at the border. I will just ask you, do you feel these policies are intended simply to deter people from coming? Or, or do you think that there's more to it than that with this this administration? Um I sat in the Ursula Detention Center in McAllen, Texas, across from a six-year-old boy who was in the same filthy clothes he traveled from Guatemala. He was alone, separated from his older brother. He was filthy. He was mute. He, was, he had no affect. On his dirty face were tear tracks. Mm. Now, you don't have people, children held in custody like that, unless you are cruel. It's intentional. I mean, look around, look around the processing center and you see the cruelty. I was asked at the Senate when I testified there, uh, do you think that these are intentionally cruel practices? And there is no question in my mind that cruelty underlies them, um, a kind of a depraved indifference to human life that I think in many cases arises to the level of criminality. There has been an enormous outcry about these practices, and uh, particularly from the activist community. Uh, and I will mention, as I did at the top of the show, that Indivisible is taking part in a coordinated effort uh, this coming week to, among other things, pressure Congress to draw down the budgets of ICE and CBP. What else would you like to see people doing to push back against these Trump administration policies on immigration? I think there has to be a, a tremendous push at Congress, um, people writing letters, sending postcards in huge numbers um, to to the Democrats saying, don't cave in. The last appropriations bill, um, the Democrats uh, uh, funded more detention centers, don't give in, and setting forth um, the kinds of, of things that must be in the legislation. There are some legislative proposals. Merkley has one. Um, there's going to be a, a briefing on the 12th of September by a number of doctors that talk about the, the trauma uh, to children and the kinds of things that must be in legislation to, to protect them. Um, there's a project uh, to amplify the voices of the children. That's an arts, a nationwide arts project, individual, indivisibles participating in that too. Um, 
and Amplify the Children is the .org, I think is the website. Uh, and anybody, anywhere can do any kind of project that they want. Uh, make a, children can make a drawing, anybody, to keep the voices of the children alive. And online, you'll find a link to all of the declarations of the children that were filed with the TRO um, that we filed after our recent visits to the Rio Grande Valley and to El Paso. I will have links to all of that for listeners at indivisiblepodcast.org. Uh, and before I let you go, I will just mention that uh, in addition to your work as an immigration attorney, uh, you are also the executive director of a nonprofit called Project Lifeline. Tell us about that. What does it do? Project Lifeline is uh, exclusively dedicated to detained immigrant children. Um, we start with uh, custody and we have a continuum, offer a continuum of care, um, including a medical component uh, at the border. Um, and legally, we are putting together programs that help provide remedies to children post-release. Well, that's great. Uh, what specifically are you working on right now? Um, we're putting together a national project to help children in rural areas apply for special immigrant juvenile status, which is a status that ultimately, if a child will qualify for it, uh, ultimately results in permanent residence. Uh, we're trying to bring social justice into rural areas where we have thousands and thousands of migrant children um, working uh, uh under uh, prevailing wages in very dangerous conditions with no access to lawyers uh, and social services. So we're, we're joining the, the effort to bring social justice to children in underserved areas. Well, it sounds like just a, a tremendous effort. And because it's a nonprofit, I will just ask you, where can people learn more and uh, where can they donate? projectlifeline.us. Hope Fry is an immigration and human rights attorney and Flores Monitor, and she's also the executive director of Project Lifeline. Hope Fry, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for having me today. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you would like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about, all of that can be found at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can subscribe to the show there, and I would love it if you did. If you would like to get in touch, I would also love that. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at Demcast usa.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guest, Hope Fry. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.